Good morning. You know, it's a pleasure to be with you all. Uh, I'm Andy. This is my wife, Jenny, over here. We have four daughters who are not with us because they're with grandparents. So here's the deal. I, I get to teach and pastor in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I say get to. I don't feel that way at wintertime. It's like negative 15 there today or something. Uh, so I'm on a research sabbatical. So I'm a professor, and it's not a vacation. I'm working full-time. I'm just writing a book on predestination for Crossway, and uh, I love it. So we decided to live here for three months while I'm doing that because my parents, Jenny's parents, live in Greenville, and uh, and it is a little bit nicer weather. So we're, we're glad to be here. So I, I called up Brent and said, hey, coming down, love to see you. And he said, hey, come preach for us. So that's why we're here, and it's a joy to be with you. I've enjoyed meeting some of you beforehand, including one of my former students uh, from Uganda. So... That was, I didn't expect to meet him. That was great. So uh, it's just, uh, so good to be with you. Um, this handout's pretty important that you have it while I'm speaking. So if you don't have it, uh, raise your hand for an usher to hand you one because I'm going to be following this throughout the, this morning. Uh, so Christians, maybe, maybe it's just in Minneapolis, but I'm guessing it's, it's made it down here to South Carolina too. Christians seem to be quarreling a lot these days. That, does that happen in South Carolina? <laughs> Yeah, I think so. Uh, especially on social media, Twitter and Facebook and all the other things I can't remember. InstaFace. Sorry, that's, I'm quoting the, uh, Bill Belichick there. Anyway, so uh, quarreling. A typical way to define quarrel is it's a, a heated argument or a disagreement, typically about a trivial issue between people who are usually on good terms. And there's been a lot of that among Christians in the last five, ten years. And and sometimes when Christians are quarreling about a disputable matter, one of them will insist that he's right because he's following his conscience. He says, my conscience is clear about this matter. So wouldn't it be nice if there was a passage in Scripture that just addressed that issue, quarreling about disputable matters? Then we could know what are we supposed to do. And the Word of God says all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped, complete, equipped for every good work. And that describes our sermon text that our brother just read, Romans 14, 1 through 15, 7. And in this passage, Paul is addressing a particular area in which the Jewish and Gentile Christians were sinfully quarreling, and he admonishes them don't do that. Don't quarrel about opinions. That's what 14.1 says. Don't quarrel over opinions. Or the NIV translates that word opinions as disputable matters. So that's why I've titled the sermon, Don't Quarrel Over Disputable Matters. And the section about disputable matters includes many exhortations. So this is a very practical section. We'll look at all of them. So let me just first kind of set, set the, the historical context, and then we're going to just walk through line by line what God has revealed here in this passage. So the Jewish culture, religious culture, highly valued following certain customs based on the Mosaic Law. And most Jewish Christians carried that strictness into their new faith when they became Christians. For example, the distinction between clean and unclean, we see that in our passage in chapter 14, verses four, uh, 14 and 20. Uh, that reflects a Jewish historical cultural context. Gentiles didn't share that 
context, that cultural background. So when you have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians together in the same church in Rome, they began to quarrel over whether Christians must observe three particular ascetic customs based on the Mosaic Law. And, and you see those on the handout, the very first table there. Here are the three issues. Food, holy days, and wine. Food, holy days, and wine. So the strong, which I'm defining as the theologically correct, and it's mostly Gentile Christians, they would say for food, we, we can eat all kinds of food. That's what they'd say. But the, the weak, which I'd call the theologically incorrect but not heretical view, mostly Jewish Christians would say, we may eat only vegetables. And this isn't like a, a vegetarian thing. Uh, uh, think like, like Daniel in the book of Daniel, eating only vegetables. Like it's that, that kind of application of the Mosaic Law that the Mosaic Law doesn't require, but it's a cultural... Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about it in a moment. Okay, so here's the next one. Holy days. The strong would, would make no distinction among days, and the weak would value some days more than others, and then the strong would drink wine, and the weak would abstain from wine. Again, I'll, I'll mention each of these more in a moment. But the problem here is, is not merely that Christians in the same church held different views on these matters. That's always been the case and will always be the case. Uh, before Christ comes, even in this church. I don't even know you, but I can say that. Uh, just like the way human nature works. Uh, people hold different views on these disputable matters. The problem is not that they held different views. The problem is that some of the church progressed from holding a permissible view to holding that view in a sinful way. And they were in danger of holding it in a heretical way. So look at page two of your handout in the back there. I'm going to illustrate these two consciences. I'm calling it a strong conscience and a weak conscience and how they address one particular issue, the issue of eating meat. So are you confident to eat meat? Those with a strong conscience would say yes. Those with a weak conscience would say no. What's the rationale? Each of these are permissible rationales. The strong conscience, some would say, I have freedom to eat meat. Jesus declared all food clean. All food's clean. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. That's the theologically correct view. So if someone's insisting a Christian cannot eat whatever meat, that's theologically incorrect. Bacon is resurrection food. It is. And you can eat it at breakfast, lunch, or dinner. I'll probably come back to that. I really like bacon. Uh, now, for the weak conscience, someone might say, I want to keep some of our previous food restrictions because I prefer the Jewish custom. Okay. That's cool. You're missing out, but that's, I respect that. That's a, that's a permissible rationale. Now, here's a God-glorifying attitude. For the strong, you could say, I can eat meat to the glory of God, and I welcome Christians who disagree. That's, that's a beautiful attitude. And if... For the weak conscience, you could say, I abstain from eating meat for the glory of God, and I welcome Christians who disagree. That's, that's beautiful. Now, here's where it's a problem. It's a sinful attitude. And this is the problem that Paul addresses in our passage. For the strong conscience, someone could say that basically 
those who can't eat meat with a clear conscience are not merely theologically incorrect, they're unreasonable. So you can be arrogant in how you hold your view. And those with a weak conscience would be judgmental. It's sinful to eat meat. Christians who eat meat are being unfaithful to God. So you raise the stakes. It's not just, I prefer this view, I think this view is correct. It's, you either agree with my view or you're sinful. And then that can reach a heretical view. That's not what Paul addresses in this passage. He addresses that in Galatians. But what can happen for the strong conscience is idolatry. I have freedom to eat meat sacrificed to idols in an idol's temple as part of ritual. That's, uh, you can read about that in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. And the weak conscience can be heretical with legalism. Christians must follow the Mosaic Law's dietary restrictions. There are a lot of ways to sin. <laughs> so that's are you following with me, with me so far? We, we together here? So let me just pause for a moment before we, we, we uh, track further here and just define terms. In the teaching session afterwards, I'm going to go in a little more detail about what the conscience is, what it can be and all that, what it can do, uh, how we can calibrate it. But for now, let me just define it concisely. Your conscience is your consciousness, your awareness, your sense of what you believe is right and wrong. And I I define it that way because you might be wrong in your conscience. (laughs) Uh, Your conscience isn't the Holy Spirit. Your conscience isn't infallible. Uh, But it's what you believe is right and wrong. And in this passage, Paul does not explicitly command the weak in conscience to change their theologically incorrect positions. I think he implies that with the, the labels strong and weak. But his main concern is not everyone believe the same thing. Uh, everyone have the same view on disputable matters. His concern is, I want everyone to glorify God by, by loving those who differ. Don't, not to eliminate differences, but to love each other in these differences. And this gets challenging for us because the disputable matters that are divisive for us don't perfectly match the three issues that we see here of food, holy days, and wine in, in this passage. There's not a perfect match. So I'm going to try to suggest some parallels, and we can talk more about those after the sermon as well. Uh, but what I want to focus on is the principles, because those are evergreen. They're always going to be applicable. So I'm going to focus on the principles that, we'll, that we can then apply to our context. On page three of your handout, I've got a, a chart there by Vaughn Roberts that I think is, is brilliant. And this chart is not about 1 Corinthians 14 and 15. It's about 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, 8, 9 and 10. But it's, uh, those are parallel passages and they connect. So it's a decision tree here. So ask, ask, does the Bible allow it when you're thinking about doing something? And if the answer is no, then obviously don't do it. If the answer is yes, next question. Does my conscience allow it? If the answer is no, don't do it. Full stop. But if your conscience says yes, some more questions. What's the effect on other Christians? Remember that love is more important than knowledge. What's the effect on non-Christians? Remember that the gospel is more important than your rights. And then what is the effect on my spiritual life? Your spiritual health is more important than your freedoms. Everything you do, do to the glory of God. I really like that, that flow chart. So I commend it to you. All right, now we're ready to dive into Romans 14 and 15. I've got a little outline there of this passage. So four 
headings. I think this is that this passage is one literary unit. We're going to focus on just uh, 14, 1 to 15, 7. I don't think we have time to do uh, the rest of the unit, which goes to 15, 13. But here's how I would uh, summarize this whole section in four, in four parts. Part one, welcome one another. Part two, strong Christians, don't cause your brother or sister to stumble. Part three, strong Christians, build up your brother or sister. And part four, welcome one another to the glory of God. So those are our big hooks on which we're going to hang everything. And for the rest of the sermon, my job is to explain and apply what God says. So I'm not going to be creative here. I'm just going to walk through the text line by line, and I'm going to show you something that you've probably not seen before. It's called a phrase diagram. Uh, And when you look at it, your eyes might glaze over. Don't worry if it's complicated for you. But let me just try to explain what you're looking at. The Bible is not a bunch of bullet-pointed verse references. Uh, If you open up a modern Bible, your eyes can glaze over. You you see so much stuff. It's it's like all these bells and whistles and little superscript numbers of footnote translation notes and uh, cross-references and study Bible notes and chapters and verse numbers. If you could just strip all that away, and it's, it's actually, it's a book. When, when you, you know, buy a novel at the store, it's just words, right? That, that's just, that the Bible is just words, and this is all added stuff. And it's helpful, not against it, but remember, it's, it's literature. And it, for this kind of literature in particular, it's a letter. And for this particular author, Paul, he is a logical genius. And every word matters, especially these little words we call connectives, like for or sometimes bigger words like therefore, or so that, or in order that, with the result that. All these words matter immensely. So instead of thinking of, of Scripture like it's pearls on a string, and each pearl is a Bible verse, and, you know, I've got a question, where do I go for this? Oh, go to that verse. I try to actually avoid using the word verse. I try to talk about passages. I talk about literature, paragraphs, sentences, phrases. Uh, just, I'm not, I'm not anti-verse I, yeah, I think I am. I'd say I'm anti-verse. Yeah, I, I, I'm coming out today as anti-verse. There we go. Um, so what I'm going to do here is try to go through this passage phrase by phrase, line by line, and show how Paul argues. This is God-breathed literature from the Lord. Every word matters. Let's jump in with verse 1 under the heading, Welcome One Another. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Let's just stop there. So this is the summary exhortation of the whole passage. Welcome the one who is weak in faith. What does that mean? How do you obey that here? Welcome the one who is weak in faith. Well, let's start by looking at that word welcome. To welcome a brother or sister in Christ is to receive into one's home or circle of acquaintances. It's to warmly embrace and fellowship with them. It's the opposite of excluding and counseling. Uh, uh, excluding and canceling. You know that term cancel culture? Cancel, you cancel somebody. You don't do that to your brothers and sisters in the church. So you welcome the one who is weak in faith. What does that mean? Weak in faith. 
Is that like Peter when he's sinking in the water? Weak in faith? Well, I think to be weak in faith is to have a weak conscience on a particular issue. That is, to hold a conviction that is theologically incorrect, but not heretical. Which means you could be weak in faith on one issue and strong in faith on another issue. Often we just assume there are two buckets, the weak and the strong, and you're in one or the other. And I've never met one Christian who says, yep, I'm, I'm weak. Everyone's like, okay, I'm strong, now how am I going to figure out everyone else? Like, isn't it interesting how we read Scripture? You're probably weak in faith in at least an area or two. Think about that. What might those be? Well, the, the Greek word for conscience here doesn't appear in the passage. You don't see the word conscience in English, uh, but the concept permeates it. Uh, it, and, it and, the, and the Greek word for conscience occurs repeatedly in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, which is this passage's a parallel passage. So to be weak in faith, what does that mean? Faith here, I think, does not refer to saving faith in Christ. And we'll see that again in verse 22 in a moment. But to the confidence that a person has in his or her conscience to do a particular activity, like eating meat. Do you have confidence to do this without sinning? That's to, to do it with faith. The weak person's conscience lacks that sufficient confidence, that faith to do a particular act without self-judgment, even if that act is not actually a sin. To him or her, it would be a sin. So, example, let's imagine that, I'll try to pick something that's so not controversial, it's, it's silly. Uh, someone thinks it's sinful to drink root beer because it, I mean, it says beer on the can and it's, if it's I think it's sinful to drink beer, and that says root beer, so it's sinful to drink root beer. Let's just imagine someone says that. Uh, I would say that's, that's bad logic, and I can't see from Scripture why it would be necessarily sinful. You might have reasons that you don't like our taste, or whatever reason, but to say it's sinful, I don't think so. But let's say in your conscience, you think it is sinful. That means that you are weak in faith on that issue, because your conscience doesn't allow you to do it with confidence. Okay, I think you're tracking with me. So, that's what the weak in faith refers to. So, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, and here's the, 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 the qualification, but don't quarrel over opinions. Not to quarrel over opinions. That's the, the word that the NIV translates, disputable matters. Don't argue about disputable matters. Don't have disputes over these differing opinions. So, this is a big question, is what counts as a disputable matter? Because that's where the debate really is. And rather than me give you a list, what I'm going to do is say, well, let's look at the ones that Paul mentions here and see what principles we can glean from them. And he mentions three. I've already told you what they are. And the first one is in verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So this is the first of the three issues that distinguishes the weak and the strong. We'll see the number two in verse five and issue number three in verse 21. So let's talk about this one. The one who is strong in faith believes he may eat anything. And the one who's weak in faith eats only vegetables. This 
is not parallel to modern debates about vegetarianism. Not at all. In fact, I didn't write it down. It's one of my favorite proverbs. Uh, it's, I call it my meat-atarian proof text, where it says, uh, like, better is this than that, and it's contrasting having a feast versus eating only vegetables. I forget the verse number. I'll do what the author of Hebrews says. Someone somewhere said, eating meat's better than vegetables. Okay. Um, so the, 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 the situation not parallel, uh, parallel to that. Here's the issue. Roman Christians that Paul is addressing here, they were divided about whether to continue following Jewish traditions about food laws. So the Mosaic law allowed God's people to eat meat. But then they had the tradition that they would avoid eating meat to avoid the possibility of eating unclean foods or to avoid any association with paganism. I think that's what Daniel 1, 1 to 6 is drawing on. Now, the text says, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak eats only vegetables. And the next line, I think, is an inference from that statement in verse 2. And it's actually verses 3 and 4 together as an inference. And, and it's an exhortation. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? And there are two reasons. The first reason is God has welcomed him. He's accepted the strong brother. He's accepted the weak brother. So you should too. What right do you have to reject someone whom God has welcomed? That, that's the logic. And then the second reason, you see in verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So if the first reason is God has welcomed him. The second is each brother or sister serves the Lord and gives account solely to that master. So you have no right to pass judgment on one of the Lord's servants. You're not the master of your fellow servant. God is the master, not you. And, and he'll see to it that believers persevere to the end. And then first line of verse 5, I think, further explains the first verse. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So this is specifying the second of the three issues. We've got eating meat, and now we have the issue of esteeming days. Again, this is not parallel to modern-day debates about how you should treat Sunday. Have you heard of, of the position called Sabbatarianism, where people treat Sunday like the Israelites treated the Sabbath, or sort of like? Uh, is this a contentious issue in this church? I'm getting blank. It might be. Okay, all right. Brent's like, nah, nah. We watch football. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Clemson is Saturday. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, that's good. That's good. Okay, so the Roman Christians Paul's addressing were divided about whether to continue observing Jewish traditions about the Sabbath or, and other ceremonial days and religious holidays. That, that, that really was, was the issue. And theologically, the correct position, I believe, is that we're no longer under the Mosaic law. We don't need to follow those anymore. 
at all. That's not a requirement any longer. That's the theologically correct position. But if you're a Jewish Christian and you want, you, you prefer to follow for cultural, traditional reasons, okay, but don't insist that we all do. I think that, that's, that, that's how Paul would, would handle that. Then verse 6. Actually, I didn't read the rest of verse 5. Uh, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's an inference of, of the, the first part of that, of that verse, so the first sentence. One person seems one day is better than another. Another seems all days alike. Therefore, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Each person should maintain a personal conviction about such a matter. That doesn't mean that your conscience is always right, but Paul is saying, get a conviction. Don't just you know, morph around with no convictions. You need to have a conviction. Be fully convinced that whatever you're doing honors the Lord. And then he explains that in the next line. Uh, verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So it's okay for Christians to disagree about disputal matters like the food you eat and the days you observe, because he says here, both the weak in faith and the strong in faith are maintaining their convictions to honor the Lord. They're giving thanks to God while they're doing what they're doing. And that, here's a principle we can glean from this. What is motivating you to hold a particular conviction regarding a disputable matter? Is it primarily, I have freedoms, I have rights, I want to? Or is it, I'm doing this to honor the Lord? I'm doing this, and while I'm doing it, I'm giving thanks to, the, to God. See that at the end of verse 6? I'm giving thanks to God. It's a great question to ask when you're, you're wondering, do I have freedom to do this or that? Can you give thanks to God for it as you do it? Then verses 7, 8, and 9 support verse 6 with some theology. Verse 7, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. Your life's not your own. And then he explains that. If, if, verse eight, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So the Lord sovereignly ordains our circumstances and we aim to honor him, whether in life or in death. And then he says, so then, it's an inference, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We belong to the Lord, whether we're alive or dead. For, this is explaining what he just said, Christ, to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. That's why he died and came back to life. So then he draws this inference. It's the blue box in your hand up, verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? Basically, you who are Weak in faith must not pass judgment on your brother or sister. You who are strong in faith must not despise your brother or sister. This is a rhetorical question that has the force of a command. Don't do that. Don't do that. And then he gives a reason at the end of verse 10. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each one of us will give an account of himself before the judgment seat of God. That's a pretty good reason 
to obey the Lord in this matter. And then verse 11 explains that this is what Scripture says elsewhere. He's quoting Isaiah 45, 23. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So big inference here. Therefore, so then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And then the very final line of this section is verse 12. Each one will give an account of himself to God. I'd say it this way. Because we're going to be giving an account of ourselves to God, we don't need to spend our short little lives meddling in the affairs of other people. We have enough to worry about, to focus on, as we prepare to stand before the judgment seat of God. So, of our four headings, that's the first one, welcome one another. We'll probably spend the most time there. Now we'll look at the second heading. And this is verses 13 through 23. 13 through 23. Strong Christians, don't cause your brother or sister to stumble. And before I start reading verse 13, let me just make an observation. This passage uses several terms or phrases synonymously, similarly. In verse 13, you see the phrase, put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 15, see that word destroy. Verse 20, destroy. It's a different Greek word, but same idea. Also verse 20, make another stumble. Verse 21, do anything that causes your brother to stumble. <laughs> Elsewhere, in Paul's writings especially, these terms refer to eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. Paul's concern here is not merely that your freedom might irritate or annoy or offend a weaker brother or sister. This is talking about eternal destinies. So, if a brother or sister simply doesn't prefer your freedoms, that's their problem. But if the way you practice your freedoms leads your brother or sister to sin against his or her conscience, oof, that's your problem. So, Christ, verse 15, gave up his life for that brother or sister. Are you unwilling to give up your freedom? for that brother or sister in a way that would help them avoid sinning against their conscience and possibly apostatize? So I think this passage is talking about ultimate spiritual harm when it talks about putting a stumbling block or hindrance in another person's way, which raises the question, how might the way you use your freedom to spiritually harm, how, how might you use your freedom to spiritually harm another believer in this kind of way? And Paul doesn't say specifically. My favorite commentator on, on Romans is a man named Doug Moo. And in one of his commentaries, he suggests two ways. One, he says, I'm quoting him, is our engaging in an activity that another believer thinks to be wrong may encourage that other believer to do it as well. So they would be sinning because they're not acting from faith, verse 23. We must be particularly careful about valuing, excuse me, about vaunting our liberty when the weak believer is in a minority. The peer pressure of most of the other Christians around him or her engaging in a particular action may be difficult to withstand. Okay, so that's one way. And he said the second way is an ostentatious flaunting of liberty on a particular matter 
may so deeply offend someone that he or she may turn from the faith altogether. So, you might be wondering, what, what could that look like in our context today? Uh, I already used the silly illustration of drinking root beer, but here's what that might look like. In, let's say you're, you have some people over to your home after the service today, you're serving lunch, and you get out the beverages, and it includes root beer, and you know, you know ahead of time that Brother Jack's going to be there, and he thinks it's simple to drink root beer, and you purposely put out the root beer, and you know that everyone else there loves the root beer, and you're passing out the root beers, and you see Jack there, and everyone's starting to drink the root beer, and like you say in front of the others, hey, Jack, you should just try it. Just try it. That's, that's a pressure. You're pressuring him. You know in his conscience he thinks it's sinful to do that, and yet here you are pressuring him to go against his conscience. I think that's the kind of thing Paul's saying, don't do that, don't do that. Or you could change it from root beer to bacon. Okay, so now we have a little more Bible behind it because the Bible explicitly says that we can eat bacon. Uh, okay, it doesn't say the word bacon, but the unclean foods are now clean. And let's say you got a plate of bacon, and he thinks because the Mosaic food laws outline that, that he, now, he can't eat it. He doesn't understand theologically he can. But even then, even though you know he's wrong, his theology's wrong, he still thinks it's sinful to eat it. You would be sinful to try to make him go against his conscience. First, he has to believe he can do it in a way that honors the Lord. Otherwise, he's sinning. Or another example doesn't involve food or drink. Modern Bible translations. I noticed, brother, when you were reading, was that the ESV? Yeah, okay, and that's what I'm using here. There's some good, uh, godly people who believe that using a modern English translation is sinful and compromising, and that if, if you were to uh, uh, use another translation, you're wrong. That, so I'm thinking like King James Version only type. Okay, I can, res- I can respect their personal conviction, but because they hold that view, does that mean that I must always read from the King James Version because someone somewhere might not like what I'm doing? See, what my point is, it's unworkable to apply this passage in a way where if someone somewhere is offended by what you're doing, don't do it. Then you can't do anything. Like, my kids can't go to any school, and I can't read any Bible translation, and I can't, like, just take off the list. You, you have to do something. The issue is how you do it, why you're doing it, what's motivating it, what's, what's the context. Uh, so now, I may have confused you. Let's get back to Paul, and I'll try to uh, draw these principles as you see it in the text. So verse 13, let's read it. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So this is an exhortation. He's saying stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, determine that you'll never place before your brother or sister a stumbling block, an obstacle, a hindrance, a trap. Live in such a way that you'll not cause another believer to stumble and fall. Then the next sentence, I have the ESV, I think, I can't remember if that's me or the ESV. I put it in parentheses. Does the ESV put that in parentheses? Verse 14? It may or may not. It does? Good. Okay, so I I think that that sentence, verse 14, is a parenthetical remark. So he's saying, don't pass judgment. 
And he qualifies it. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. That's his way of saying, I know what the theologically correct view is here, but there's this principle that if you think something is wrong, it's sinful for you to do it. If you can't drink root beer to the glory of God, don't drink root beer. You see, you see the, the principle here? Get a conviction. Make sure that what you're doing, you can do while you give thanks to God. And if you can't give thanks to God for it, don't do it. Don't do it. So back, back to the text, verse 15, then gives his reason for back in verse 13, where he says, don't put a stumbling block. Here's why. Because if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. You're not loving your brother or sister if you're grieving him or her by what you eat. That's a, that's a good reason not to do it. And he further explains in verse 15, the second half, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Don't spiritually harm someone merely so that you can keep doing what you prefer. You value them more than you value yourself. Verse 16 then draws the inference of verses 13, 14, and 15. Therefore, so, don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So what you regard as good, that's talking about your freedom to eat meat or your freedom to treat every day alike. He says, don't let that be spoken of as evil by those with a weak conscience. Here's why, verse 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the reason. What characterizes God's kingdom is not primarily what we eat and drink, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So if you have a strong conscience on a particular matter, don't overvalue your right to exercise that freedom. Verse 18 explains further, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So if you obey the exhortations in verse 13, 15, 16, notice I have the exhortations in yellow block there. If you obey those exhortations, you're pleasing God. And that's what ultimately matters. And further, uh, verse 18, that second line, you're not just acceptable to God, you're approved by men. I think that means you receive human approval in a good kind of way, and you thus avoid dissension in the church. And then he draws another inference of what he just said in verses 17 and 18. This is verse 19 and first part of 20. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. So, Positively, he's saying, let's pursue what promotes peace and builds one another up. And negatively, don't destroy God's work in the church over what you eat. And then he gives a reason for why you shouldn't destroy the work of God over food. The, the next sentence in verse 20. Everything is indeed clean. But it's wrong for anyone to make another brother stumble by what he eats. All foods are clean. But that doesn't mean you're free to eat and drink anything, anytime, anywhere. It's better not to eat or drink at all or do anything else if that would destroy your brother or sister. 
he goes on verse 21, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother or sister to stumble. And that phrase, or do anything, that's the open door to apply this to any area. He's not just talking about food and drink and holy days. This applies to all of life. All of life. By the way, that, that phrase, drink wine, that's issue number three. So you've got uh, eating meat, observing holy days, drinking wine, in the Jewish background context. And that those are the three he's applying it. Those are the three we're trying to draw principles from to our own context. Now, I'll say one thing about the, this wine issue. We can say more in the Q&A if you want. Uh, this is not an exact parallel to our modern-day issues over whether Christians should drink alcohol. Just like the first one about food was not an exact parallel to vegetarianism, and the second one about observing holy days is, an, is not an exact parallel to Sabbatarianism, this is not an exact parallel to modern-day issues that Christians have about whether you should or should not drink wine. Remember, the background of this is the, the Mosaic Law and the Jewish tradition for observing it. The Mosaic Law allows God's people to drink wine, but sometimes the Jews who lived in pagan cultures refused to drink wine to avoid ritual contamination. Again, Daniel's helpful here. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. I think that's the background there. Now, the next part, verses 22 and 23, explains or clarifies verses 19 to 21. So let's read verses 22 and 23. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So here's, the, here's how I summarize his exhortation here. He's saying, maintain your convictions about disputable matters, but you don't need to broadcast those convictions. Have them, but you don't have to broadcast them. So if you have freedom, don't flaunt it. If you're strict, don't expect others to be strict like you. So I imagine if he were writing today, he'd saying, if you have freedom in a particular area, you don't have to put pictures about it every time you do it on Facebook. He might say that. I'm guessing. Um, and, and then he says, uh, uh, blessed, second half of 22, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. I love this. He's saying, uh, this... You, you shouldn't sin against your conscience regarding disputable matters for at least two reasons. The first one is you're blessed or you're happy if you live according to your conscience. This is for your good. God designed you a particular way, and it's like he wrote the manual for how to be happy. And all these people think the way to be happy is to buck against the creator's manual. No, this is a way to be blessed. It's to live according to your conscience. Uh, it, it's like the gift of pain we have in our senses. If you're at a hot stove and you feel, pain, you feel the hotness, God designed our bodies, if they're working correctly, to just instinctively pull back because that pain triggers, if you keep doing this, it's going to hurt you. And our conscience is a sweet gift from the Lord like that of don't do that, don't do that. That's going to hurt you. You live according to your conscience, you'll be blessed. And then the, the second reason related to that, verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. So you're condemned if you sin against your conscience because you're not acting from faith. And then that's, 
That's a problem because of the proverbial truth that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you do anything that you believe is not right, you're sinning. So here's how how Mark Dever puts it. He says, conscience cannot make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing wrong. I'll say that again. Conscience cannot make a wrong thing right, but it can make a wrong... (laughs) But it can make a right thing wrong. So uh, let's take the first part. Conscience can't make a wrong thing right. Someone says, oh, I believe that a person can abort the baby in her womb with a clear conscience. I mean, I have a clear conscience about that. Well, your conscience is wrong. Uh, That's evil. Uh, That's wicked. And you need to calibrate your conscience according to God's word. Conscience can't make a wrong thing right. But you might say, I can't eat bacon with a clear conscience. Your conscience is wrong. Conscience can make a right thing wrong. You see, you see how this works? You're starting to see? Okay. So that, that's uh, sections one and two. Now let's look at section three. It'll go a little faster now. Uh, section three, let's summarize this way, 15, one to six. Strong Christians build up your brother or sister. Build up your brother or sister. So chapter, chapter breaks in the Bible go back to the 1200s. Chapter verses go back to about 1550. This chapter break is in the top ten of the least helpful in the Bible, probably, because uh, it breaks up a literary unit. Uh, just disaster. So this is, should not have a chapter break here. Fifteen one is summarizing what Paul has exhorted the strong in 14.1-23. He's saying that we who are strong in faith must bear with the failings of the weak. That's, I think I just quoted it. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. We who have a strong conscience must patiently endure the weaknesses of those with a weak conscience. We must not please ourselves in that Galatians 6.2 sense. And then he draws an inference. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, for this purpose, to build him up. We must not, see, I say this, we must please our brothers and sisters for their good for their edification, to build them up. This doesn't mean that you're supposed to be a people pleaser in, the, in a sinful way. People pleasers sinfully care more about what others think than what God thinks. It's not what this is talking about when it says please your neighbor. The choice is not between pleasing others and pleasing God. It's not like that or this. The choice is Am I going to unselfishly please fellow Christians by, edif- by edifying them? Or am I going to selfishly please myself while disregarding others? That's the, the, the either or here. One twisted way to selfishly please yourself while disregarding others is to please others in a way that affirms their sin and thus is not for their good. That's my application. It's not Paul's point here. Uh, but I think it logically follows from the principle here in verse 2. Now, back to what Paul's point is. When, he, when we, He's talking about our Christian freedom as, as strong people. Christian freedom is not, I always do what I want. It's not freedom. That's immaturity. It's not, I always do what the other person wants. 
That's people-pleasing. Christian freedom is, I do what glorifies God. I do what brings others under the influence of the gospel. I do what builds up the church. It's the freedom to sacrifice your rights for the good of others. And then he gives a reason. Why is that so? Verse 3, 4. Here's the reason. Christ did not please himself. But as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christ did not please himself. We must follow the example of Christ who put others first. And compared to the freedoms and the privileges that Christ gave up to become human and die on the cross, what would you call our freedom to eat meat? That's just a trifle. And, and he quotes Psalm 69, verse 9, as proof of this. The New Testament frequently quotes Psalm 69 to interpret Jesus' death. And here he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Here's his argument. So when you argue from the greater to the lesser, it would be like saying, if I, could, if I could pick up this pulpit, then I can pick up this water bottle. Argument from the greater to the lesser. So here's the greater work. Christ suffered insulting reproaches at his crucifixion. That's the greater work. Christ suffered insulting reproaches at his crucifixion. Here's the lesser work. We should be willing to suffer by unselfishly pleasing fellow Christians for their good instead of selfishly pleasing ourselves. This is convicting. And then verse 4 is an aside that explains that quotation. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. God wrote the Old Testament not directly to us, but he wrote it for us. Specifically for our instruction. And for what purpose? That we might have hope. How? Through the endurance and encouragement found in the scriptures. And then he draws an inference from that. You see, in verse 4, he uses the words endurance and encouragement. Then he repeats those in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 5 and 6 are a beautiful prayer. They say, may God enable you to endure and encourage you and help you live harmoniously with one another. And on what basis? In accord with Christ Jesus. For what purpose? That together you, both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the purpose is not merely unity. It's unity for the purpose of glorifying God. So glorifying God is another way of I'd say glorifying God is a way of, of feeling and thinking and acting that makes much of God. It shows that God is supremely great and good and all-satisfying and all-wise. We most glorify God when he most satisfies us. So that's our, our third unit. And our fourth unit is the last passage, and we're not going to work through the entire passage, but just look at verse 7, and I'll point out a few things here. I'd summarize this last bit, verses 7 to 13, as welcome one another to glorify God. 
this is a, a literary unit, but for the, the sake of time, I'm going to focus on just verse 7. Therefore, which is an inference of everything thus far, 14.1 all the way through 15.6, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So instead of quarreling about disputable matters, welcome one another. Does that sound familiar? Welcome one another? Where do we see that before? 14.1, remember it's an opening exhortation? Welcome one another. But here, he tells us in what manner. He doesn't say this quite in 14.1. Here, you welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. That is, as a forgiven sinner. You, you welcome one another as forgiven sinners, as fellow siblings in God's family. That's how you welcome one another. And for what purpose? For the glory of God. And that's what the rest of this passage emphasizes. In verse 9, you see the phrase, that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. I will praise you and sing your name. 15.10, rejoice. Verse 11, praise the Lord, extol him. 12, in him all the Gentiles will hope. 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you may abound in hope. This passage is about glorifying God. Welcome one another to glorify God. So, this passage gives us, I believe, what is God's brilliant solution for what to do when we're quarreling about disputable matters. It's much, much easier said than done, and we can discuss this more in the time afterwards, uh, the teaching time to follow. But for now, let's conclude by asking God to give us grace to respond to his word in a way that, that honors him. So I'm going to pray, and would you please pray silently with me. I'm going to pray on all of our behalf, and then I'll turn it over to Pastor Brent. Father, we are finite, sinful people, and for a bunch of reasons that you know far better than we do, we disagree with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ for all sorts of reasons, on all sorts of disputable matters. So we ask, would you please give us grace to welcome those who disagree with us on various disputable matters? Give us grace. Would you please give us grace to not look down on those who are stricter than we are? And please give us grace not to be judgmental towards those who exercise more freedom than we do? Would you please give us grace to be fully convinced of our positions in our own consciences? Help us have convictions that honor you? Would you please give us grace to practice our freedoms and restrictions for your glory and to assume that other believers are doing the same? Would you please give us grace to keep disputable matters in perspective because we know that we're all going to stand before your judgment seat? And would you please give us grace to not let our freedom destroy the faith of a professing Christian who is weaker on a particular disputable matter? Would you please give us grace to build each other up in righteousness and peace and joy? And would you please give us grace to not flaunt our freedom or expect others to be as strict as we are? Would you please give us grace to live according to our conscience and experience your blessing? Would you please give us grace to follow the example of Christ? who put others first? Would you please give us grace to glorify you by 
welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us. Father, we are weak and selfish and we need so much endurance and encouragement to live with our brothers and sisters in this way of peace. You are the God of endurance and encouragement. So please give us grace to live in such harmony with one another and in accord with Christ Jesus that together we may with one voice glorify you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, let's just pray and we'll turn it right back over to Dr. Nacelli. Father, thank you for the consciences that you've given to each of us, and I pray, Lord, that they would be rightly attuned to your word, that we might be led by your spirit, and that we might be charitable to our brothers and sisters in Christ in all matters. We thank you, Lord, for the spirit of unity that you've given us for the moment at this church, and we pray, Lord, that nothing would come along to disrupt that unity, that we might, Lord, for the sake of brothers and sisters, Lord, be willing to forego and to forgive and Lord, that you would just give us a continuing sense of unity around your word, around your gospel. We thank you for the spirit who works among us. Help us all to be sensitive to his work in our hearts. We pray for your blessing on this hour now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Yeah, uh, I'm out here. So this is going to be super informal. And Pastor Brent has a microphone to rove around. Someone just handed me a list of questions already typed out that I haven't looked at yet. So we're ready to jump right in here. So you want me to start with these? Okay. And if no one has questions, I have plenty to talk about. So it's a half page. Okay. Four questions. Number one, what experience or worldview motivated you to write the book Conscience? Good question. I actually wrote it with a friend of mine named J.D. Crowley. Is he a friend of this church? You guys know J.D. Crowley? Crowley, J.D., Hampton Park, yep. You accept him in Christ. That's, that's good. Find the Bible there. Okay. okay. <laughs> he likes bacon. Uh, he's a wonderful man. He's about a generation ahead of me, and he's been a missionary in Cambodia for, I don't know, 30 years now. Um, so we collaborated, and we came at it from different angles. Uh, his angle was that when he would come home from Cambodia, home being like Greenville area, uh, he might be in someone's home, and be sitting on a couch, and he might have his feet up on like a chair or a coffee table. And someone would walk by, and they would step over his legs. And in his conscience, he'd be like, you are being so rude. What's wrong with you? And they'd go, oh, oh, I'm in America. That doesn't matter. See, in Cambodia, it's, I think this is an Asian culture thing. You don't step over people's legs. And he's, it started, he started asking questions like, what else is in my conscience that I... How does this, this work? So, that, that, so we were talking about us, his angle. My angle was I, I grew up in... Uh, well, first I was Mormon. That's another story. Uh, my, my, my mom divorced, remarried, and then uh, became a Christian. Uh, so I, from like uh, age 6 on, I was in Southern Baptist churches, and then like age 12 on in fundamental Baptist churches. It's like the temple churches that would send their kids to schools like Maranatha, Northland, Pensacola, Bob Jones. I think you guys have an idea what I'm talking about because you're connected to Bob Jones in some way. Uh, so my growing up in that culture, uh, I was in a bunch of different churches. I lived all over the country. 
I was a different school every year from grade 6 through 12, so I saw a lot of different cultures uh, in America. And one thing that uh, I experienced was a lot of rules, very dogmatic rules that sounded like, you know, down to this is the way you're supposed to dress, this is the music that you can listen to and can't listen to, which I understand. I'm, I've got four daughters. We've got modesty standards. Uh, I have music that they may not, so I, I get that. But it was very uh, dogmatic about this and not this, and uh, I started asking questions like, okay, um, why is that the way it works in this context, but in this context of Christians, it's different, and in this one, it's different. Why are people different on these things, and how are we supposed to relate to each other? And it's really kind of snowballed when I went from Bob Jones to Trinity, so I was at Bob Jones from 2002 to 6 doing a PhD, and then I went to Trinity in Chicago to do another one, and Trinity's like, broad, generic, evangelical, and a little different than Bob Jones. And when I was at Trinity, I was meeting some people who, I, from what I could tell, they really loved Jesus, and they weren't at all like what I was used to. And I started asking questions, how, did, how does this work? And when people would talk about each other, some of my friends from Bob Jones would talk about people from this world in a derogatory way, and then it was common in the people in this Trinity world to talk about fundamentalists in another way, and I'm just like caught in between going, no, 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 they're actually good guys. No, no, they're, they're, they're. so I'm, I'm trying to referee like, guys, stop. Uh, and that's how came this book. So that's short answer. Uh, that's the first question. Number two, how can the conscience help a Christian relate with a sense of inclusion without selectiveness to the ones they worship with? Oh, boy. Do you, does the person who handed this to me want to remain anonymous? If not, would you like to elaborate? All right. Oh. It was you. So are you willing to explain more? Ah, there's a microphone for you. Again, you said, how can the conscience help a Christian relate with a sense of inclusion to the ones they worship with. What do you mean? Uh, sometimes, um, just as the as as word brings out, do we pick and choose? And how does the conscious conscience come into that whole sense of picking and choosing and um, in, in regards to the people that you fellowship with, that you find yourself Maybe relating to some group and never to another. That, how does the conscience help to open that, um, that door a bit wider? Okay, I think I understand. If, I, if, I, if I'm not getting this right, come back with... Okay. Here's... Um, let, me, let me use the issue of, of music in a church service to illustrate this. My guess is that we all prefer particular styles of music and that when you're in a church service that has more than one style at any one time someone is listening engaging to music that's not what they most prefer like this morning uh, we sang an old hymn and then we it was like our mighty forces are god and they were like whoa now we're the gettys like that was difference that was that was jump I'm guessing for some people, they're like, yeah, Mighty Fortress. And others are like, this is good. 
And then we got to the uh, uh, newer song. Some were like, yeah, I love this one. And the other was like, that's all right. I'm guessing. I don't know. I can't pull you. But that's just a small way to illustrate how, a very small way, to illustrate how there's a, there's a give and take of you're willing to, to uh, not always demand what you most prefer for the sake of, of the whole. Um, and this, this really applies most in a local church context. This seems more like an international-ish church because you're located near a university, which means you're going to have all kinds of different cultures. And what a wonderful way to grow in your ability to prefer and love and serve each other by learning each other's cultures and just be more aware and how to defer in those ways. So I think that's where I'd encourage you guys to try to apply this is in getting to know people in your church context who aren't like you and, and growing in that way. You want to follow up on that? No? That's good? Okay. Here's a third one. As believers, we know the Holy Spirit is at work in us to guide what we may think, say, and do. But when met with uncomfortable matters, why is silence or an impersonal approach generally preferred over coming alongside with encouragement? With uncomfortable matters... Help me here. Are you talking like masking, vaccines, uh, political parties? What, is that the kind of thing you're talking about? No. You say, why is... You're, it's almost like a rhetorical question. You're basically saying silence is generally better. It's preferred over coming alongside with encouragement, like encouragement to reconsider your thought, your view. You think silence is better than encouragement in Christ? Oh, why do people generally do it? Ah, <laughs> is preferred. I thought you meant is, is it better? Like we prefer it. Okay, like why do people do that? Oh, yeah, um, because we're people pleasers and we want people to like. This is an issue, especially with Christian leaders right now. I call it uh, the plague of being the nice guy. Uh, uh, Christian leaders just just want everyone to be happy and like each other and like them, and uh, they they're afraid that if they're disagreeable, then someone's not going to like them, and it just it causes them to lead with a failure of nerve and conviction and backbone. Uh, this can happen, and it trickles down in just interpersonal relationships where uh, you just want to keep the peace, don't rock the boat, uh, you know, paper over the problem, and not get to hard issues. If you can tell. I'm, my wiring is not that way. Uh, my wiring is, let's get to the issue, get to the heart of the matter, let's address what the issue is in a, in a loving way. So when you say it's preferred, I guess maybe you're, you're thinking a lot of Christians do that. That's my sense. Now, my wife and I have a, lot of question, have a lot of conversations about this. Would you agree with what I just said? You're smiling at me. Which part of it? Uh, the part about that people are often just wired to avoid conflict, and it's just easier to avoid uh, talking about controversial issues uh, and just, you know, kind of cruise by. He's got a mic. Yeah, yeah.
Yeah, could you guys hear my wife? She said, how do you know when to welcome someone or maybe challenge them? So here's a, a way to misapply what I think what Paul is saying is someone comes to you and says, hey, I, uh, I was on Facebook the other day and I, I found my old flame from high school and I, I think I'm going to divorce my husband and, uh, and, and date and marry this guy. And you say, oh, that's, that's wonderful. I just welcome you and affirm you. Oh, let's celebrate. No! No! Right? So there's a line somewhere. And you're, so we recognize it is sinful to affirm someone in their sin. So when, when Romans 14 one says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, how has Christ welcomed us? Has he affirmed our sinfulness? No. No. He hates our sin. He died for our sin. So it's, it can't be affirming sin. It has to be, I affirm you as a blood-bought person, but never affirm the sin. So then the question becomes, well, how do we know if a particular matter is sinful or not? By the way, Pastor Brenton's holding the mic, so at any point, if you want to correct me, uh, you... I'll clean it up next week, okay. If you believe that you can do it and it is a sin? So it's like troubling your conscience is a very important way of putting it. Well, is it not necessarily troubling your conscience? How is it okay to do that? No, no. Uh, so let's say I, the example, example I gave in the sermon was someone believes they can have an abortion with a clear conscience. Just because your conscience is clear doesn't mean it's right. So your conscience is something you need to calibrate with Scripture and in the context of the community and by the Holy Spirit and with time uh, to line up. And none of our consciences fully align with God's. We, we all have areas where we're doing things with a clear conscience and we're sinning. You have to ask, what are those? Uh, so an example, it could be, let's talk about entertainment choices. Um, watching, watching films that have explicit sexual nudity in them that is the purpose of it is to incite or just to be graphically display lustful scenes uh, should christians be watching those and some i know some christians who say yeah that's okay as long as you know you're not involved in it and it's it's not like you went out and tried to find it, it just happened in the midst of your cultural pursuits and john frames book on ethics. I love John Frame, but he makes that basic argument just stunning. I can't believe he makes that argument. Uh, so there are Christians who argue that way. Uh, I would, if someone argues that way, I would push back, as I do in my classes at Bethlehem Seminary, and argue, your conscience, I think, is wrongly calibrated in that area, and that you should repent. <laughs> yeah. Conscience and develop that a little bit. Sure. If you would. So, uh, let's talk about calibration. I've got an iPhone here that says it's 11.48. That clock looks to me like it says 11.49. Okay. 
either this is right, that's right, or they're both wrong. So, got, <laughs> I like this guy. He's funny. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, so, th there's a standard. What time is it? And we align instruments according to a standard. Maybe your bathroom scale, not maybe, it's, it's misaligned, right? It's, it's, um, so, calibrating, it's just a metaphor for you align something to a standard. Um, with your conscience, the standard would be, how is it off from what is true of God? Uh, and, 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 and what he knows, it says, is right. So to calibrate might mean, let's say you're Paul the Apostle. No, let's just say you're Paul prior to becoming a Christian, and you are persecuting Christians with a clear conscience. Then you become a Christian, and you recognize, whoa, that was sinful. You calibrate your conscience. No more persecuting Christians. Take that from the category of, I can do it with a clear conscience, too. That's sinful. We all have areas like that where we once did something and now we look back and go, I can't believe I did that with a clear conscience. And the reverse, where at some point in our life we couldn't do something with a clear conscience. But now we better understand scripture and realize, oh no, I, I can do that with a clear conscience. So that when I say calibrate, that's what I'm talking about. It's, it's adding things to your conscience that you can do in a way that pleases the Lord. You can do in a way where you give thanks to God as you do it. And you remove things that you once could do and you realize that was wrong. So th that's what I mean by calibrate. Do you want to follow up, ma'am? There was another teen in a row behind you over here. Yeah. Oh, oh you're related to this guy? Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could y'all hear this lady? She's basically saying, how do you, how does this work when you're partnering with other Christians in a ministry and you might disagree on some theological issues, basically? So I'm going to back up and talk about something called theological triage. Uh, stick with me here. And are any of you medical professionals? Uh, okay, I got one, two, what do you do? You're a nurse. I'm going to go with the nurse instead of the professor, if that's all right. So uh, when... Two people come into a hospital. Let's say one of them, he's playing basketball and he broke his thumb. And he's in a lot of pain. I mean, so he comes to the emergency room. And he's been waiting for like two hours. And then like, as after two hours, still waiting, someone just got in a car accident. And is like practically paralyzed on death's doorstep. They wheel him in. Who gets treatment first? When the, the car accident happened like five minutes ago. Why, do, why is that, nurse? So as a medical professional, when you have multiple people with medical conditions, you triage. Which one gets my attention first? Okay, that's what I mean by triage. Um, if you're a parent and you have multiple kids, this happens when they're all crying at the same time. Which one do I... Uh, now, uh, a, a president of Southern Seminary named Al Mohler adapted that model to something he calls theological triage, where he's saying, okay, the Bible teaches a lot of things. Can we group them into categories of most important, 
not most important, not not most important. You know, like, can we have a level like that? Um, and I think Scripture has a category for at least two. Uh, scripture gives us two categories. In First Corinthians 15, Paul says, I'm writing to you about the gospel, which is of first importance. So right there, okay, some doctrines are most important, first importance, others are not first importance. So that, that's clear. Uh, but to this lady's question, I, would, I think having the triage of three categories is, is even more helpful, where you have most important, really important, not as important. Now let me explain what those are. The most important would be if you deny any of these, you can't be a Christian in any meaningful sense. All Christians affirm these things. So I'm talking about the Trinity, uh, deity of Christ, justification by faith, basic, basic stuff. Uh, this is Christianity 101. has nothing to do with denominations. It's just Christianity. The second category, not most important, but still really important, is stuff that's really vital for a church's health. Um, I didn't ask, are you guys, yeah, University Baptist Church. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I got it. Okay. (laughs) Baptist, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Give me a second, okay? (laughs) Hang on, let me finish this thought. So, uh, you guys are Baptists, which means you're not going to baptize babies. I have some really good friends who baptize babies. And we agree on almost everything except that. And we have all kinds of fellowship. And I don't think they're bad people. I just think they're wrong on that. And we're not going to, like one of them you might know, he's, he's stayed over, Kevin DeYoung. He's a pastor in North Carolina. He loves to baptize babies. Uh, yeah, when he was pastor for Kirk Cousins when he was a quarterback at, at uh, Michigan State. And when the Vikings signed Kirk Cousins, I'm like, Kevin, let's get him at Bethlehem. It's like, ah, can you give me some churches to baptize babies? Like, ugh. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so uh, we're, we're dear friends, but on that, we're just not going to plant a church together. No way. Because we, we fundamentally disagree on the who of the church uh, and try, how church membership works. And baptism is pretty important. There are other issues that I would put in this not most important, but still really important for the health of the church. Uh, I told you I was writing a book right now on predestination. So that's like doctrine of election. Uh, it's possible to have a church where the, the pastors are both, you know, uh, I'll use theological terms, Calvinists and Arminians. Uh, it's possible. E-free churches have that, evangelical free and some others. But I think it's most healthy when the leadership is aligned on that issue. I don't think all the members have to be. So I'm a pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church. We're aligned on that issue as pastors. We have a, a, an elder affirmation of faith, and we have a different statement of faith to be a member. So the elders believe a lot more than the, the members have to believe to be a member. And we're very specific on, on that. So that includes things like baptism and our, our polity, how elders work, and the sovereignty of God over all things and in salvation. Uh, and we could talk about some other issues there. So really important for the health of a church and for partnering in specific ways. So if you're going to plan a church together, this matters. And then in the third category, it'd be still important. I didn't say unimportant. Everything God says is important. We don't want to minimize anything God says. And when we stand before the Lord, he's not going to be like, oh, uh, that was, in, your, in your little theological triage thing, you just disobeyed me in the third level issue, so that's okay. No, 
everything matters. We obey in everything. So this triage thing is to help us and all of its obedience. But it's still helpful to have this third category of Christians can disagree on these things, and that's okay. But we still want to strive to obey the Lord and honor him in these things. It's not like these don't matter. They all matter. They just don't matter as much as this, as this one and as much as this one. So back to this lady. Your, to answer your question is, when you partner with other Christians, the issue is, what are you partnering to do? Are you just partnering to evangelize on a campus? Are you partnering to plant a church together? I'd, I'd say that's the most intimate kind of partnering. Are you, are you partnering to have a Bible study? I started Bible studies in high school at four different high schools. Uh, that's pretty generic. I can partner with a Presbyterian for that. Uh, I didn't mean that to sound crazy. Presbyterians are, can be great. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, another issue that goes in, in number two, I would say, is the role of men and women in the church and home and society. Uh, really important, but you can still go to heaven and be wrong on that. Uh, I think, yeah. I, I'm kidding, I shouldn't joke about that. Yes, you can. Uh, does that, does that help a little bit? Uh, in the back. Me to ask this question. You had your three things this morning, and the third one was wine. 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 I think you said wine. Do you want to expound on that? Sure. Um, Great. Boy, I should have talked to Pastor Brent about this. Um, I'm going to tell you my view, and, and you can clean this up if you want. Uh, I believe that Scripture does not uh, uniformly, unambiguously say that a uh, Christian who drinks wine is sinning. Uh, Jesus drank wine. The Bible talks about wine gladdening the heart of man. I, I just can't go from Bible to it's always sinful to drink wine in every context, in every culture, in every situation. I think the Bible allows it. That's why John Piper became pastor of my church in early 80, 1980, uh, the covenant to be a member had in it that you had to abstain from drinking wine, drinking alcohol, to be a member. So it's basically saying you can't be a Christian if you drink alcohol. And he's a teetotaler, meaning he, he will not drink alcohol. I'll come back to that in a second for why. But he knows his Bible, and he realizes that the Bible doesn't actually say a Christian may not drink alcohol, full stop. That might be a wise application in a culture, in a time, for you, but he's saying, I can't require that to be, a, to be a Christian. So he led the church to remove that from the requirement to be a member, even while he would personally not drink alcohol, and he would recommend people not drink alcohol. Right? I, I agree with that. I personally don't drink alcohol. I've tried. I think it tastes disgusting. Uh, so that's another other reasons. But, uh, but I have friends like who are professors at Southern Baptist Seminaries, where it's in their, I forget how it worked, but they... They pledge not to drink because they're part of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I respect that. Basically, they're saying, for various wisdom reasons, we're choosing not to. Okay, I can respect that. But as soon as you say, to be a Christian, you may not drink, I, I throw the yellow flag. No, I throw the red flag. Uh, that's, that's wrong. That's my view. Do you want to clean that up? Okay. <laughs> Do you want to follow up, ma'am? Okay. I don't, I don't know if you all hate me now, but I'm okay with that. All right. Uh, Right here. Oh, I'm going to go with the, the little guy first. Yeah. Oh, you get a microphone, man. Speak up. Hello. Um, how do you help a... This is loud. Okay. How do you help a person that has, like, a strict belief, but they don't want to hear your advice? <laughs> do you want to give me an example? 
Hey, can you give me an example? Um, so going back to like the wine, if somebody says, like, I believe wine, you, like you cannot be a Christian if you drink wine. Uh-huh. Um, and you say, you, you can be a Christian if you drink wine, but, but they absolutely don't want to hear it. How okay. do you help them? Good question. How old are you? Twelve. Twelve? Good, good, good. Twelve was about the age I was when I started really getting interested in theology. Uh, I started reading a lot then, and it just kind of snowballed from there. So maybe this is your time. Okay, um, here's, here's my advice. Uh, you don't, in the first conversation, you don't have to try to win a, a debate. So sometimes we might be similar. Guys can do this especially, is they see an issue, and th- another guy takes this view, and you have this view, and it's like you're on a wrestling mat. I want to win on this issue. And I, I understand debate, and that's it's worth doing. But maybe if you could imagine this way, step back and think, this is a person made in the image of God, and we have a relationship, and I want that relationship to improve over the long term here. So take a long-term view of, I want to help this person over the long haul, and not just win this debate right here, right now. You with me so far? This is especially important when you're talking to family members. Uh, okay? So think about winning the person over the long term, not winning the, the debate in the moment. Which might mean, at that first conversation, you ask a lot of questions to understand better. So are you saying this? Okay. Why, why do you think that? Help me understand and you might at that stage say, okay, I, I'm not, I don't quite agree with that, and here's why, but you're not pushing, you're not having to win the debate right there. Some, some people call this putting a pebble in someone's shoe, meaning you're trying to just do enough at the moment to make them reconsider what they think at the moment, because often in a debate, they're not trying to think about changing their minds, they're trying to win. But if you take a different tact of, okay, let's not just try to win at this moment, but let's try to over the long haul, when you, you might have a different tactic in that moment as you're talking about it. So on that issue, you might say, okay, I respect your, your position. Um, so would you say that Jesus was sinning when he turned water into wine? And you might say, well, obviously Jesus didn't sin, but, and he might have, a, and just try to understand. He might say, well, wine was different then. It was X parts water to X part alcohol, and today it's this part water to this part alcohol. It's a totally different substance. Okay, okay. okay. Uh, so when, when the Psalms say that God gave wine to gladden the heart of men, it sounds like it, he created it, and, and it's a good thing that you can abuse, and you can get drunk, and that's wrong, but that y- there's a good way to use it. So how do you understand those Psalms? And he might say, oh, I need to think about it. Like that, I would ask questions and get him thinking and, and not have to you know, body slam him in the moment to win the debate. Are you understanding me a little bit? Uh, so that's the, t- the tact I've taken. Uh, I call it creating cognitive dissonance. Here's what I mean. So especially with family members uh, who have stricter views than I do on something, I try to create cognitive dissonance where they see my life and see that I love the Lord with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. I am a committed Christian, and we differ on this issue. I, I want them to feel that, well, he loves Jesus, 
a lot. And yet, he does this. And he thinks he's glorifying God as he does this. Huh. That is the tension I want them to feel rather than in the moment, body slamming them. Do you want to follow up there, buddy? No? I think that's good? Okay. That's a good question. Yes, ma'am. So we haven't talked a lot about guilty conscience. Uh, we've been talking about sensitive conscience. My question, I don't know if it may be out of your context today, but can a guilty conscience ever present as an overly sensitive conscience? Oh, yeah. You want to say more? <laughs> you want an example? I don't want to give the example that's in my mind, but I am dealing with someone who I get the sense that this predominant um, excuse of, well, I have an overly sensitive conscience and that is actually hiding a guilty conscience. I agree with you. Okay. Yes. Um, Can you explain that? Yeah, I'm trying to think of ex concrete examples. Um, Jenny, if you think of one, shout it out. Okay, so basically someone could say, I'm going to avoid the hard work of calibrating my conscience and just kind of say, well, that's... That's what it's telling me, and just kind of stop it there. When you're trying to help shepherd someone into calibrating their conscience on an issue, and you're thinking, no, no, you really need to calibrate. Either you need to remove something or add something, and you're basically just saying, I give up. Uh, my conscience is what it is, and, I, and I'm, I'm not going to work on it anymore. Is that what you're saying? Oh, we didn't. We totally missed each other. This never happens. Oh, what? what? <laughs> did, did I? Did we? Can, we're good. Okay, we're good. I looked at your face, and I read it wrong. Okay. Do you want to follow up on that more? Address the guilt you're hiding. We could talk offline yeah, if you want. <laughs> maybe you should ask him that specific example afterwards. Is that unless because I, mean, I don't want you to feel like you have to let the whole church know. But I, I sense you have something very specific. Oh yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Let's talk afterwards if you want. This guy or this, this lady here. So my question is, do you think that someone who is the weaker believer on a lot of issues limit their effectiveness in ministry? Yes. Yes. That's the whole reason that Paul talks about this. In the, in the book that J.D. Crowley and I wrote together, there's the final chapter, he wrote most of it, and he's basically, his thesis is, if you don't know how to obey Romans 14 and 15 in a local church context in America, 
how are we going to export missionaries internationally? If you can't do it here, how are you going to do it in another culture? So an example could be, let's say, I don't know if this is an issue here, uh, let's say a lady thinks that it is always sinful to wear slacks, that a lady must always wear a dress or a skirt. Um, I like dresses and skirts a lot. What are you wearing? You wearing a dress? Okay, my wife's wearing a dress. Cool. Uh, I didn't, didn't notice this morning. Uh, uh, so, okay, so let's just say in your conscience to wear slacks ever is sinful. Okay, uh, I, think, I don't think the Bible ever says it quite like that. The Bible says to be modest, be feminine. And it, I, in my view, I think it's possible for a woman to wear slacks in a modest and feminine way. That's my personal view. If you don't, okay, we can disagree on that. But just let's say you go to another cultural context and you take, here's how it works for me in this place in the world, and you go to another cultural context where all the women wear slacks and only the prostitutes wear dresses. There are some like that. You can't minister in that context unless you're willing to wear slacks. But if your conscience won't let you wear slacks, you, you can't go, right? So my point is, unless your conscience is strong in certain areas, you're not even going to be free to be flexible for the sake of the gospel in certain contexts. You with me? So this is, this is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, about 21 to 26 around there, where he's basically saying, I become all things to all people so that all mean, by all means I might save some. Uh, to the Jews, it became a Jew, or to when Jews, the Greeks, became, you know, it, the, he, he was able to lay aside his freedoms in certain areas to win people. It's very much an evangelistic, okay, I, I come with the Jews, I don't have to eat certain kinds of meat to, for the sake of winning the Jews. I'm with the Gentiles, okay, I can do this when I'm with them to win the, win the Gentiles. I'm free to be flexible for the sake of the gospel. You can't do that if you're weaker on certain issues. All you can do is that one thing. You're not free to be flexible. Very insightful question. Are you two related? Not yet? Okay. Soon. Well done. Well done, sir. Okay. Uh, Brent, I'll just let you choose who's next here. George. George Mann. Are you thinking of Acts or Galatians? So he's talking about, uh, I think it's Acts 10, when the uh, Lord came to Peter in a vision and three times said, eat this unclean food. And three times he said, no, to the Lord. <laughs> I can't do it, Lord, because I'm holy. Uh, and, and he had to calibrate his conscience after a whole life of thinking certain foods repulsive. It'd be like, me saying to you, hey, here's, here's some dog. Eat dog. And many of you are like, you don't eat dog. Uh, right? Uh, uh, some cultures, they love dog. But in, uh, that'd be hard for you. What if you're a missionary in a culture where your neighbor serves you dog? Uh, uh, okay, back to the point. The point is, Peter had to calibrate his conscience to eat food that was repulsive to him. Yeah. Yeah. That's my favorite example in the Bible of calibrating your conscience. Brent? Yes, sir. Yeah, I was thinking, uh, like, especially in the context of the South where there's so many different churches and it's really easy to just kind of, like, shop for churches and pick one that, oh, you know, this one, they believe everything that I believe, perfect. You know, down to every little bitty thing. Um, Is it worth, like, 
try, because that happens so much, is it worth trying to branch out and whether it's going to a church that might believe different, like slightly different things on like, you know, the lesser important side, um, or even just ministering with other Christians that believe slightly differently. Is it worth that as far as, you know, the conscience and kind of learning that as opposed to what so many people tend to do and just kind of find, find their body of believers that believes everything exactly the way they want it and just stick with that? That's a really, really insightful question. Um, this is a question the Bible doesn't address head on because in the Bible times, in New Testament times, there was the church in Rome. There wasn't like the 17 different varieties. I, I told my wife and I think we passed like a thousand church buildings on our way here this morning. Uh, there's so many. Oh man. Uh, so what would Paul say now? Uh, here's my guess. Uh, there are a lot of reasons to be part of a church. Probably uh, it makes sense to be part of a church that's geographically near you and theologically in line with what you believe the Bible teaches. So we want to be theologically aligned. I don't think we should choose a church primarily for practical reasons like the way that people dress and the style of their music is what I most prefer, therefore I'm going there. Uh, but that is a factor. I mean, we're, we're, we're raising children in a context, and if we have strong convictions about about applications, those matter. And and it's not like we don't care about them. We we we, we factor them in. They're just not the most important thing. Those are level threes. We can factor them in, but we want to choose mainly on the level one and level two. Do you remember what I meant by level one and level two? The level one meaning what's the essence of Christianity. Level two, what's really important to be healthy. And level three is you can flex on those things. But they still, they still matter. Let me say something about that triage. I don't want to talk about triage like level three doesn't matter. It matters. So let's like, take the issue of, of modesty. I might have different, different opinions about what does modesty mean for a man? What does modesty mean for a woman? But the Bible teaches that we should dress in a way that is appropriate and modest. And that matters. It really matters. We don't just think, oh, Christians disagree, so whatever you want. No, it matters. And if you're in a church context where as best you can tell, that's not even, no one's trying to be modest. That's a problem. Do I sound like a legalist for saying that? I'm not a legalist. I just believe the Bible. Uh, but we also need to recognize we have cultural conditioning for what we, you know, it's complicated. You're the pastor. Fix it if you want there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, was, I was just going to say, when we were working through Romans 14, I mentioned this example you know, you, you're never going to find a church where everybody's 100% on everything. Yeah. And in my experience, when I came here as a pastor, there was something that this church does that I don't particularly like, and we still do it to this day, and none of you know what it is. What is it? <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you later. All right, all right. <laughs> I actually encourage it. I actually encourage it. I've encouraged it ever since I've come here, and I'm not sure I totally even like it on my own conscience because, you know, I'm not going to find, if, 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 if a church agrees 100% with Brent Cook, I'm the only member, you know. So it's somewhere between that and levels one and two, you, you're going to have to give up at some point along the way. But we're going to let you All right. let you go unless there's, anybody who's had a question, was just, you're, just, you're dying to ask this question, you're hoping to ask this question, and you're going to leave here disappointed. Nancy, oh, we got two more. Okay, we're gonna go. We're gonna go. What's that? Mine isn't. There's a really 
I mean, you get into the evangelism topic, but as far as the, con how does that relate to the conscience? Is that what you're asking? Well, their consciences won't allow them oh, to do certain things. Right. I would just prioritize evangelism over cultural assimilation. That's the principle I'd, I'd go with, yeah. Right there, I, I knew an Apache Indian in high school that I was trying to evangelize, and he says, I can't come to church, I'll have to cut my hair. I said, forget about your hair, let's worry about your soul. We'll worry about the hair later. <laughs> or never, yeah. you know. Nancy, we'll let you have the last question. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So the tyranny of the weaker brothers basically means the church is misunderstanding Romans 14 to mean whatever the weaker brother thinks, that becomes the standard for how everyone operates. So if someone says, if you quote anything other than the King James Version, that offends me. All right, everyone, read only the King James, quote only the King James, uh, that's it. Someone says, uh, if you have music with a guitar, that offends me. Okay, no more guitars. If you have, so it's basically, all right, lowest common denominator, whatever might offend someone, okay, that becomes a new thing. And before you know it, they're ruling. The people with the weakest consciences are ruling the church. That's the tyranny of the weaker brother. And that just cannot be. That's not how Paul talks. Is No, 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 we're not removing the freedoms of, of, of the strong. We're telling the strong, here's how to interact with the weak. Is that, is that answering your question, ma'am? Yeah. Okay, so J.D. Crowley and I already wrote a book on the conscience. I'm currently writing a book on predestination. Is that what you're talking about? Uh, let's see, August 2023. <laughs> Sorry. Anywhere books are sold. I don't know. <laughs> Do they have bookstores still? It's Amazon, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>